Friends, I want to join with Brother Dylan tonight in telling you that we are very grateful for your presence. And I am fully well aware of the fact that there are other places where you could be this evening. But I believe that like Mary of old of Luke 10, that all of us have chosen the better part as a result of being present in the assembly this evening. And we're very grateful, especially if you're here and you're not a member of the Church of Christ. You're an honored guest among us, and we want to treat you very courteously and very kindly and to encourage you to return again and again to the services conducted by the Church of our Lord here in Talladega or in other places where you may be. And indeed, we have had a lot of rain the last day or two. We had a very fine rain down in Montgomery the earlier part of the day, and some rather turbulent weather passed through the state. And uh, But now the sun is shining, and it's beautiful and portends to be a good day tomorrow. You've heard the story, haven't you, about the preacher that always took his temperature before he preached, and one day he couldn't find the thermometer. And so he used the barometer, and the reading was windy and dry. <clears throat> Well, it hadn't been very windy, it hadn't been very dry today, but nonetheless, we have had the showers of heaven that's watered the earth and brings fertility to the soil and productivity uh, during the, uh, indeed, fruitful season. I do trust and hope that all of us will plan to be present in the morning at the Bible school hour. And at that time, our lesson for discussion will be a first-century Christian worth knowing. And then at the Bible school hour, uh, we tentatively intend to discuss the lesson, Growing Through Worship. And then tomorrow night, Why I Am Happy to Be a Christian. In Acts 17, 11, and 12, we read, that the people in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word of God with all readiness of mind, and they searched the Scriptures daily to see if what was being taught was so. When the text says that uh, they searched the Scriptures daily, that says they had an open Bible. When the text says they received the Word of God with all readiness of mind, that says they had an open heart. And any time you have an open heart and an open Bible, you have the combination that spells spiritual success. I have no reason to believe otherwise than that this good audience this evening is composed of people who have open hearts. And friends, I pledge this evening to hold before you an open Bible. And that being the case, we have the combination this evening existent in um, the city of Berea. And thus we are assured of, indeed, that recipe for spiritual success. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and 15 we read, that we are to be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh us, a reason of the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. And based upon that text, be ready to give an answer. I desire this evening to discuss this subject, 
why I am a member of the Church of Christ in the 20th century. I would like to begin, first of all, by observing that I am a member of the Church of Christ in the 20th century because it is incomparably great. There is no institution in the world that begins to commence to compare with the greatness of the Church of our Lord. Now, the reasons for that are multiple, and out of them we only list these. In the first place, the Church of our Lord is incomparably great because it was Calvary purchased. Now, Brother Merrill, a moment ago in his prayer, mentioned the fact that the Church of our Lord was bought at Calvary. And how true that is. In the book of Acts 20 and 28, Paul told the Ephesian elders, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of the Lord which he hath purchased with his own blood. Again, Ephesians 5 and 25 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And that's why Ephesians 1 and 12 and 13 speaks of the church as being the purchased possession. And it being purchased at Calvary, and again that by the blood of our Lord. If I were to say this evening that the suit that I have on cost $100, and then I were to ask you, how am I going to receive the benefit of uh, the $100? You would simply say, Brother Winkler, you've got to get into what it bought, what the $100 bought. That's the only way you'll ever receive the benefit of the $100. Again, get into what it bought. In like manner, friends, if we're going to reap the benefit of the blood, we must get into what it bought, and it bought the church of our Lord. Again, if I were to say that the suit that I have on cost $100, and then I were to say, did I get value? Did I get value received? And if you said yes, you got value received. And that means this suit is worth $100. And like madam, our Lord purchased the church with his own blood. Did he get value? Did he get value received? If so, then I come to understand something about the value of the church then by understanding something about the value of the blood. Yes, the church of our Lord is indeed Calvary purchased. Add to that secondly. The church of our Lord is incomparably great because it is the very glory of God upon earth. Ephesians 3 and 21 says, Unto God be glory in the church throughout all ages, world without end. There was a preacher among us, now deceased, that was reared in the state of Kentucky in a rather affluent home. And I heard him say that when he was a child growing up, that, uh, about so high, that his folks had someone to come in daily to assist in the domestic uh, chores and responsibilities. And he said that uh, every day when she arrived, she would always bring with her her little boy, who was his same age. And he said that he would always be spotlessly clean and immaculately dressed. And daily when she would arrive with him, 
she would always take him and entrust him into his care. And as he so did, or as she so did, she would always say, Now, Master Jim, you take care of my little boy, for he's my glory. And up in heaven tonight, when God gathers that innumerable angelic creation around, his great white throne, and he wants to show them his glory. He doesn't point to the majestic sun. He doesn't point to the starry Milky Way. He doesn't point to the moon as it waxes and as it wanes. But when God wants to show the angels his glory, he points down to the church and he says, That's my glory. Under God be glory in the church throughout all ages, world without end. Yes, the church of our Lord is incomparably great because it is the very glory of God upon earth. With that to that Thursday. The church of our Lord is incomparably great because it is the very eternal purpose of God. I used to say, that the church was in the eternal purpose of God. But when we study the Ephesian epistle, especially from that vantage point, we change our phrase and we say that the church is the very eternal purpose of God. Ephesians 3, 10 and 11 reads, uh, and the text says, To the intent that now unto the principalities and the powers in heavenly places might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to his eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, when that text is analyzed, it will reveal the following. First of all, Paul says, to the intent that now, that is, when he was penning the epistle, that was about A.D. 62, to the intent that now, secondly, unto the principalities and the powers in heavenly places, if we had the time tonight, we would make a contextual study of that and show that the principalities and the powers in heavenly places unquestionably refers to the angels, the angelic creation. Thirdly, the text says, to the intent that now unto the principalities and the powers in heavenly places might be made known, watch the term, the manifold wisdom of God. Now, there's the wisdom of God. And it's modified by the word manifold. Now, the word translated manifold in that text is from a word that the Greeks used whenever they wanted to describe flowers in their multiple hues. Whenever they wanted to describe cloth with its brilliant design. In other words, the word connotes that that is variegated or multicolored or many-splendored. So the text then talks about the variegated wisdom of God. Now you put all of that together, and the text says, In the present dispensation to the angelic creation, the variegated wisdom of God is being made known by the church. Oftentimes we quote that fashion and say, the church has the mission of preaching the gospel to the world. Now that's true, and that may be a secondary thrust of the passage.
But the primary thrust of the passage is that the church manifests the variegated wisdom of God to the angelic creation. Then the text says, and that's according to God's eternal purpose. Eternal purpose. Now, I would never sign the proposition resolved that the church of the Lord came into existence on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, about A.D. 33. I'd never sign that to debate. I don't think it's properly worded. I would sign the proposition resolved that the church of the Lord came into existence in an established state on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, about A.D. 33. For, you see, the church of our Lord existed before the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, about A.D. 33. Now, let us observe. In the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 47, the church of our Lord came into existence in a state of perfection. That's why we read the Lord added to the church daily, such as were being saved. But in the book of Luke chapter 16 and verse 16, in the days of John the Baptist, it existed in a state of preparation. Then I turn back to the book of Isaiah chapter 2 and in verses 1 through 4, and I read that during the days of these prophets that the church of our Lord existed in a state of prophecy. Then I turn back to the book of Genesis 22 and 18, and I then also read in conjunction therewith Galatians chapter 3, 16 through 19, and I read that during the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the church of our Lord existed in a state of promise. Then I read the text we are presently discussing, Ephesians 3, 10, 11, and I read that the church of our Lord has always existed in purpose. Remember the five P's. Perfection, preparation, prophecy, and uh, promise, and purpose. And you'll have the overall development of the church of our Lord. But especially tonight, Watch that matter of the church of our Lord existing, existing in a set of purpose. Once more we read the passage. To the intent of man, unto the principalities and the powers in heavenly places, might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, here it is, according to his eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal purpose. Now in this audience tonight, there some folks that can readily recall matters that occurred 80 years ago. Have no problem with that whatsoever. None of us in this audience this evening have any difficulty whatsoever accepting by faith matters that occurred 2,000 years ago. Whenever our Lord walked the Galilean shores and the Judean hills, we have no problems with that. We even go back beyond that. And we can go back to that time whenever God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And we don't have any problem with that. We accept that without reservation. Yea, even back to that time when, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We even go back that far. And we have no problem with that. But let's antedate that. 
And let's go back beyond that. And back there in that limitless, fathomless, non-beginning expanse of time known as eternity, there never was a time in the omniscient mind of Almighty God that God did not intend to make the church a reality. Ladies and gentlemen, you might as well talk about God having a beginning as to talk about the church of Christ having a beginning. The church of the Bible never had a beginning. Never had a beginning. It has always been in the omniscient mind of Almighty God in purpose. Now, on Pentecost, it came into existence in perfection. But it has always been. Then we look out there into that limitless, fathomless, non-ending expanse of time known as eternity, and there never will be a time in the glorified state that the church of our Lord will not be. And thus as uh, the psalmist said of God, from everlasting unto everlasting thou art God, we can say from everlasting unto everlasting the church of our Lord always has been, presently is, and will forevermore be. Ladies and gentlemen, that absolutely boggles the mind. And when a man gets a hold of that, there are two things that will result. Number one, if he's not a member of that church, he will say, I have got to investigate that. I cannot afford not to be a member of the church of my Lord that is that incomparably great. To think that by God's grace, he's given me the privilege of being a member in such an institution. And secondly, when I come to understand that, it will cause me, if I'm a member of it, to say such an institution that, my friends, that great, demands the best I have and the best I am. Yes. I'm a member of the Church of Christ in the 20th century because it's incomparably great. Why? Calvary purchased the very glory of God on earth, and it is the eternal purpose of God. But secondly, I am a member of the Church of Christ in the 20th century because you can read about it in the Bible. In the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3 and verse 9, the text says, Zechariah, chapter 3 and verse 9, Then will I turn to this people a pure language. In the book of Isaiah 8 and 20, the prophet says, To the law and to the testimony, if any man speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in him. First Peter 4.11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Now, based upon the principles of these passages, the present point is being discussed. That I am a member of the Church of Christ. Why? Because you can read about it in the Bible. Now, friends, I want to be very kind because, as someone said, if we're not kind, we're the wrong kind. But let me ask you this question. How can something be biblical and you can't read about it in the Bible? How can something be scriptural and you can't read about it in the Scriptures? How could that ever be? And now... For no intent at all to be offensive for the sake of being offensive, but may I kindly ask, 
of what church are we a member? All right, we've answered that. Now, can you read about it in the Bible? Can you turn and read about it? How can it be biblical if you can't read about it? How can it be scriptural and you can't read about it? Friends, when you open the pages of the New Testament, you're going to find that the church of our Lord is designated in the following ways. Number one, it is spoken of as the church. In Ephesians chapter 1, 22 and 23, number two, it is spoken of as the church of God. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place called upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Called the church of God. And then it is called the church of Christ. In Romans 16, 16. The churches of Christ salute you. It's called the church of the Lord. American Standard Rendering. Acts 20 and verse 28. So it's called what? The church. Church of God. Church of Christ. Church of the Lord. These are the biblical designations. Someone says, Brother Winkler, I don't understand that. If it's the church of God, how can it be the church of Christ? The church of Christ, how can it be the church of God? How is that? I don't understand it. Friends, that's no contradiction whatsoever. In John 17, 10 and 11, Jesus prayed to the Father and he said, All of mine are thine, and thine are mine. Therefore, if it's the church of Christ, it's the church of God. If it's the church of God, it's the church of Christ. But that's not all. John 1 says in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 says, And the Word was made manifest and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, verse 14 says the Word is the Son of God. Verse 1 says the Word is God. Therefore, what? Jesus Christ is God. Not God the Father, but is God the Son. So Paul might have had in mind in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 when he says, Under the church of God, he might have had in mind God the Son and not God the Father. But in respect the point is the same. For if it belongs to Christ, it belongs to God the Father. And if it belongs to God the Father, it belongs to God the Son. Now, that's how the church of the Bible is thus designated. Now, you will never find in the pages of the New Testament where the church of which we read therein is ever designated after any type of church government, after any virtue of character, after any modern-day prophet, after any reformer or restorer, or after any so-called church ordinance. The church of the Bible is not thus designated. And so then I'm a member of the church of Christ in the 20th century because you can read about it in the Bible. Thirdly, I'm a member of the church of Christ in the 20th century because it's the only one you can read about in the Bible. Someone says, wait a minute, Brother Wayne. Would you repeat that? It's the only one. You can read about in the Bible. Someone says, that seems to be so narrow to me. Is that really the case, friends? I really believe tonight that this audience is composed of folks who have open hearts. And I promised you I would hold before you an open Bible. So what saith the Scriptures? In Matthew 16 and 18, Jesus said, 
Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, what does that text say? All of us believe that that text says exactly what it means, and it means exactly what it says. If I can ascertain what that text says, I'll know exactly what the Lord had in mind. What he means. Does in the text say, Upon this rock I will build a church? That's not what it says. Well, then that's not what it means. Does that text say, Upon this rock I will build one of many churches? No, that's not what it says. Well, then that's not what it means. Well, does the text say, Upon this rock I'll build many churches? No, no, that's not what it says. Well, then that's not what it means. Someone says, well, Brother Winkler, what does it say? The text says, Upon this rock I will build my church. Now, whatever that says, that's just exactly what it means. Now, what does it say? Ladies and gentlemen, the Lord promised to build the church in the singular. Let's suppose this evening that I were to say, Upon this table I will lay my watch. And then I were to say, Brother Cotter, would you mind coming, please, and taking the watch of your choice? Brother Cotter would say, Brother Wakeler, I can't do that. There's not but one there. That would be accurate. Well, if when I say, Upon this table, I will lay my watch, if that means there's not but one there. Then when our Lord said, Upon this rock I will build my church, how can we get 200 out of that? It is just that elementary. Friends, the Lord doesn't have to say anything but once to make it important. But surely when something is repetitiously affirmed, it takes on a greater degree of significance. Watch carefully. In the book of Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18, and Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24, three times in the New Testament, we're told that the church is the body of Christ. Three times. Now watch it. In Romans 12, 4 and 5, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, 1 Corinthians 12 and 20, Ephesians 2, verse 16, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, and Colossians 3 and verse 15 and 16. Six times in the New Testament we're told there is one body. Six times one body. Three times the church is the body. Now, how many are there? What saith the Lord? What about that open Bible? What saith the Bible? Now, when we get a hold of that, we're better able to understand what was in mind when our Lord prayed. And he said, Neither pray I for these alone, but for all of them also that shall believe on me through their word, that they may be one, Father, as thou art in me and I in thee, that they may be one in us, 
that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. You see, our Lord prayed for unity, that all might be one. Someone says, Brother Winkler, don't you think all the denominations of our day make up that one body? Friends, that might be indeed a very pleasant thought, but that's not the case. And the reason why we know that's not the case is because the Lord said, I pray that they will be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. Now, question. Isn't the Father and the Son one in doctrine? Well, Jesus taught that. He said, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Which means what? I'm simply teaching the doctrine of my Father. We're one in doctrine. Now, what happens when you got Church A teaching one doctrine, Church B teaching another doctrine, Church C teaching another doctrine, Church D teaching another? They're not one in doctrine. So then how could all of them make up that oneness for which our Lord prayed? No way in the world that could ever be. Someone says, that doesn't work. That just doesn't work. It may be a pleasant thought, but it isn't the case. The Lord prayed for oneness. I want you, if you will, friends, to go with me back here to 2,000 years ago. And the shadow of the cross has already crossed itself over the Lord's path. And with the cross being so imminent, he prays and he says, Father, I pray that they will be one. Now we leave that scene. And it comes some 2,000 years since, the 1991. Here in one of the pulpits of America, a man with arms outstretched and his eyes looking heavenward says, And Father, we have thee. For the many churches of our day that a man might have a church of his choice. And now I kindly ask, to which one of these do you subscribe? You can't subscribe to both. Our Lord prayed for oneness. When I was a very young gospel preacher, in this state, we had gone down into an area and pitched a tent and held a meeting, sought to establish the church of our Lord, and then subsequent thereto had gone back into the community every Thursday night and held Bible studies. And I can still see those wonderful people who opened up their homes in that rural area and standing there by that mantle and that coal oil lamp and those Bibles open and teaching those hungry hearts. What a pleasant memory. That's one of the wonderful things about being a Christian. So many pleasant memories. And to enjoy an event in memory is to have lived twice when it occurred and then in the memory. Friends, obey the gospel when you're young and live with memories in your old age. Don't wait till you're old. You don't have any memories. Don't have any memories. And I can still remember that. And one Thursday night when the class was over, the gentleman in whose home we were meeting said to me, he said, Brother Winkler, he said, could I ask a question? And I said, yes, sure, that would be most appropriate. He said, last Saturday I was uptown. And he said, there was a man preaching on the street corner. And he said, I listened to him. And he said, he taught 
They're very opposite from what you've been teaching us in our community. And he said, Brother Winkler, I think he was honest and sincere. And he said, now you've been coming down into our community for a number of weeks. And he said, I think you are as honest and sincere as the day is long. But he said, you are teaching us the very opposite of what I heard that man teach on the street corner. And after pausing for a moment and then continuing, he said, Brother Winkler, I can't read and I can't write. How am I going to know which one of you preachers is telling me the truth? Now, you handle that. How am I going to know? How am I going to know? You're teaching the very opposite. I can't read my Bible. I can't even write, sign a check. I can't write my name. And I said to him, as best as you can, you try to forget everything you've ever heard me teach in your home. And equally so, try to forget everything that you ever heard that man of the street corner preach. Just try to blot it out of your mind. You take somebody in whom you have unquestioned confidence, such as your wife, and you have her to open up the book of the Matthew and start reading with chapter 1 and say to her, read it without comment. Just read. And I said, when she gets through reading, you'll know exactly what to do and of what church to become a member. Years transpired. I saw a mutual friend, and I said, do you recall? He said, yes. He said, uh, Brother Winkler, I believe he's dead now. I said, did he ever obey the gospel? And he said, to the best of my knowledge, he never obeyed the gospel. And friends, it's flooded through my mind countless times. That poor man who wanted to do right, searching, but he was just so frustrated not knowing which way to go and which way to turn about his soul's salvation and dying and never having obeyed the gospel. And then, thank God for religious division, how could we ever thus do? How could we do that? It's a contributing factor to unbelief. The one of the Lord said, I pray that they will be one that... The world may believe thou hast sent me. Meaning what? In the negative. If they're not one, what? There'll be many who will not believe me. And the word believe there is used by way of obeying me. They'll not follow me. And so religious division that is a contributing factor to disobedience. Suppose I were to stand in your presence tonight and I were to say, Friends, it is wrong to baptize babies. Tomorrow night I stand in your presence and I were to say, Ladies and gentlemen, it's all right to baptize babies. The third night I stand in your presence and I say, My friends, you can be baptized by having water sprinkled on your head. The fourth night I stand before you and I say, Friends, you can't be baptized unless you're immersed. The fifth night I stand before you and I say, Friends, you cannot be saved unless you're baptized. The sixth night I stand before you and I say, Friends, you can be saved and never be baptized. 
Suppose that were to occur. How much confidence would you have in me as a preacher? Why, none at all. Now, if one man cannot teach it six differing ways and be right, how can six differing men teaching it six differing ways and all of them be right? It is just that simple. You see, the Lord said one. One. That's the open Bible. And thus I'm a member of the Church of Christ in the 20th century because you can read about it in the Bible. Yea, because it's the only one you can read about in the Bible. And add to that fourthly. Because it's the same church of which Peter, James, John, and Paul were members. I've been preaching the gospel for a number of years. We've got other preachers here in the audience who have done the same thing, and they will vouch for this. I have never met a man, I never expect to meet a man who believes the Bible, who has said or will say to me, you know, Brother Winkler, Peter, James, John, and Paul, yes, they were members of the wrong church. I never expect to hear that. Everybody believes that Peter, James, John, and Paul were members of the right church. Now, if I can find that church in 1991, of which they were members in the first century, then it's still got to be the right one. Someone says, well, I, would, I understand that. That would be actually true. Yes. God don't change. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It was right back then. It's right now. But Brother Winkler, we've been nearly 2,000 years since these men lived. How are you going to know when you find that church? In 1991, and that's a very valid question, a very sincere question, an honest one. To illustrate tonight, suppose I had lost my car, but you had never seen it, and I'm going to ask you to help me find it. And I want to say to you, I have an Oldsmobile, and it's a 1985 model, and... It is brown, uh, tan in color, exteriorly, and it has a brown interior, and it has a dent on the right front fender. And now, you're going to help me find my car. Well, you go outside, and you're along, you see a car, you say, maybe that's it. No, 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 you say, that's not it. That car is uh, a Ford, and I'm looking for an Oldsmobile. Here along, you're looking, and you see a car, and you say, Maybe that's it. And sure enough, it's an Oldsmobile. You look more carefully and you say, no, no, that's not it. That's a 1988, and I'm looking for an 85. Well, you continue your search, and before long you see a car, it's an Oldsmobile. You look more carefully, it's a 1985. But you say, no, no, that's not it. That's a maroon car, and I'm looking for one It's tan. Here along, you see a car, it's an Oldsmobile, 1985, and it's a, and it's a, tan car, and you look on the interior, and you say, no, that's not it. That's a tan interior, and I'm looking for one that's brown. And then along, you see a car, it's an Oldsmobile, 1985, it's tan, it has that brown interior. You look on that right front fender, and it has a dent, and you say, I found the car. How did you know when you found the car? You knew when you found the right car, when you found the car, 
that had all of the essential identifying features. In like manner, you can open up your New Testament and you can read about the church of which Peter, James, John, and Paul were members. And number one, you'll find that that church was governed by the apostles' doctrine only. That's Acts 2, 42, Galatians 1, 6 through 9. They had no creeds, no manuals, no disciplines, no confessions of faith, faith, and no catechisms. None. Number two. You'll find that that church of which they were a member was organized in local congregational capacities with no head of the church on earth. They didn't have a group of men that sat in conclave that sat in a synod, that went to a convention and made decisions and handed these down to, con to the constituents. No, 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 that never happened. Rather, you'll find that in these local congregational capacities, they had elders, deacons, evangelists, and members. And you can read about all of them in one verse. Philippians 1 and verse 1. Number three. You'll find that that church met to worship God upon the first day of the week, and when they thus met, they sang a cappella. That means without a mechanical instrument of music. Friends, that's a matter of historical fact. All you have to do is read the history books, read the encyclopedias, read what is so commonly called the uh, Antinicene Fathers. These men that lived from the days of the apostles up to the year 325 A.D., and they all talk about it. It's a matter of historical fact, but that's not what's important. What's important is that's the teaching of the Bible. In Ephesians 5 and 19, that's how they sang. Number two, they prayed unto God. Add to that that they studied the Bible. Add to that that they observed the Lord's Supper the first day of every week, Acts 20, verse 7, and they gave her their means on that same day, 1 Corinthians 16 and 2. Now, that's how they worshipped. In the fourth place, you became a member of that church, of which Peter, James, John, and Paul were members, by simply becoming saved. Acts 2.47 says, The Lord added to the church daily such as were being saved. No such thing as a man being saved on Monday and joining the church the following Sunday. That never happened in the Bible. What happened? When a man was saved, God added him to the church. So if you wanted to be a member of the church, what? You were saved. But how did you become saved? Naturally, you could be saved only by virtue of the fact that the Lord's blood had been shed for you. Says the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, 4, and 5. If it had not been shed, nothing you could have ever done would have brought salvation. We're sinners saved by grace through that blood. But even though our Lord was uh, crucified, his blood was shed. That doesn't mean everybody will be saved, Matthew 7, 13, 14, which means what then by way of deduction? That I must do something in order to be saved by that grace and through that blood. But now what must a man do? How beautifully clear the Bible is. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That verse starts off by saying, He ends up by saying, shall be saved. Now the question is, who is the he that shall be saved? I certainly want to be saved, therefore I must become that he. 
Well, did our Lord say, the he that shall be saved is the he that believeth? Did our Lord say, the he that shall be saved is the he that is baptized? Well, then, Lord, who is that he that shall be saved? The Lord says, he that believeth one and is baptized too shall be saved. So then, the he that shall be saved is the he that becomes that believing, baptized one, or the baptized believer. And the moment that I become that baptized believer, I constitute the he that the Lord says shall be saved. So if I want to be saved, ladies and gentlemen, I become the he. And I'm that he when I believe one. And I'm baptized number two. And yes, then what I'm saved. And then what happens? The Lord takes the saved and adds them to the church. Now that's the way it happened in the days of the Bible. That's non-denominational Christianity. They didn't become a member of a sect. They didn't become a member of a denomination. They were non-existent. Well, of what did they become a member? Jesus said, Upon this rock I'll build my church. That's what they became a member of. And then add to that, not to develop, it was designated back there as the Church of Christ or an equivalent. Now, friends, with no intent at all tonight to be boastful, because that would be wrong. That would be wrong in attitude, and I certainly don't want to do that. But I am so happy tonight that I am standing before people that I have full confidence in, that have those open hearts, that are saying, Brother Winkler, tell us plainly. I'm happy I can tell you there is a church in your community like that. You see... The Church of Christ is designated as the Church of Christ. Number two, if you wanted to become a member of it, you went to a brother, he would just simply say, if you want to be a member of the church, you must be saved from your sins. You must become a baptized believer. There'd never be a vote cast on you. You'd never recite an experience of grace. You'd just simply become a baptized believer. That in and of itself makes you a member of the church. We worship upon the first day of the week. We sing a cappella. We pray to God. We study. We partake of the Lord's 